For Our Soil's Sake is brought to you by Holistic Management Canada. My hope is to feed our souls by having meaningful conversations with farmers, producers, and experts in agriculture to get a greater understanding of management practices that mitigate climate change, improve water quality, build soil health, and enhance habitat and biodiversity on agricultural landscapes. To give those of us who live in the city a better understanding of how what we consume directly affects our health and the health of the land. My name is Bronwyn Green, and I'll be your host. So for our soil's sake, let's dig right in. Thank you for tuning into the show. Joining us today, we have Moritz Passman from Crescent Wood Farm. Crescent Wood um, is uh, a farm, a family farm just north of Russell, Manitoba. The family's about, I mean, the farm is about 1,200 acres of mixed cropland with perennial cover crops and livestock integration. This past summer, their farm was involved in Holistic Management Canada's Accelerator Program. This program sets out to speed up the adoption of regenerative agriculture practices in Manitoba. So Moritz is here today to share his experience in the program and tell his farm story. Welcome, Moritz. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, In just a minute, I'll get you to tell us a little bit about yourself, but just for our listeners uh, to know a little brief history on how we met, um, Moritz was actually the first farm that I ever monitored on my own in the program. So um, in an earlier episode, I talked about my experience, what led me to this point. Um, and Moritz was actually there uh, on my farm tour day where I brought people in and uh, showed them a little bit of what it was like to do some observational monitoring on your pastures and your soil health. Um, and then after the tour, he asked me if I'd come to his farm and look at a couple of his pastures and do some of the monitoring. So that was just something I did independently. Um, and then, so I was super excited to find out that he joined in on the program, the accelerator program, which, um, brought him into the network of, um, EOV. And so we got him onto the program and we were able to monitor his farm for the first time this year and get all that information into the, the Savory Hub database, um, and make a benchmark so that you can go from there. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, do you want to share a little bit more about yourself for our listeners? Um, sure. Where to begin? So my name is Moritz, I guess. Everyone knows that now. Um, I was born and raised in Münchweil, that's in Germany. Um, I started my career more like in the timber framing and construction business uh, for quite a while. And then over the course of the last six years, I started to get really involved in agriculture, foremost in Manitoba, because my my wife, we met in China and somehow we ended up in Canada and Russell. And uh, that just got me really hooked on farming, like being involved in the first place and then also having that opportunity. Like it's not every day that you walk up to a family farm and no one is really taking over, right? So that's right. pretty unique from my from my point of view anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. So that has been a very interesting thing because it's like, yeah, I don't know, migrating into another country and picking up a new trade, that's kind of the best out of both worlds, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. so it makes it and very so, interesting most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so just to clarify, so the farm that you two came back to, that was your wife, Stacy. Her parents own that farm? That is correct. Yeah. 
Okay. And then they just didn't have a successor necessarily. And you saw the opportunity to farm or did you kind of already have a little bit of a desire to farm before that? I always had a bit of a desire to farm. Like I always have been involved in the farming community, even in Germany. I'm from the little town I'm from. There's like mostly um, uh, corn silage and vineyards and forestry around as agriculture. And most of my friends have been farming. So I always have been working out and, and being in contact with all that. Just, you know, having the career as a timber framer and had my own business and that was all going very well. Like I never felt the urgent need to do something different. Just being out here, um, having that opportunity, right? And I mean, there's always work around and I always like to work so that, uh, yeah, I don't know, we've made good partners from the beginning, kind of. Nice. <laughs> and, and they've so- always been very supportive. Like, especially my in-laws, like no matter what, like if I wanted to do my timber framing business out there or get involved farming, like they have been more than helpful most of the time. Yeah. All the time. Not most of the time. Awesome. And so what changed um, in the farming practices from when you started working with them? So um, I think it's Shirley and Ross. Those are her parents. That's they, were they, they were both managing the farm and then you came in and started managing it with them. Did things change significantly when that happened? Or did you kind of uh, follow along with what they were doing at first to kind of get your bearings? Well, it's, well, it's kind of interesting. You know, it sounds always like a conventional farm uh, that creates sometimes these horror pictures in people's head. And it wasn't really a conventional farm up to that degree, you know, where we did a lot of tillage passes or a big amount of chemical input, mostly based to the fact I believe that Ross has been farming alone. Like, you know, now we're doing 1300 acres. That's, it's not just something you do by walking by there. Right. And I think just lots of the stuff that could have been done, like on most conventional farms, just never got done. Right. And uh, yeah, I think that has been beneficial. Our beneficial turnout here right now to take that over. We don't, we're not dealing with, you know, really degraded soils. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that bad yet. And they always used to have cattle. Uh, they run them holistically in the end. Like, they both did the holistic management course. Well, I would have to lie now, but sometime after the 80s, maybe. Okay. So quite a while ago. So they ago. took that course well before you started farming with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's what, that was the interesting thing, because holistic management has always been, you know, like that hovering term on the farm, you know. But I, by the time I got involved, the the cat the herd had been sold already. They I had loading the last bull, and that was my first day on the farm, I believe. Oh, that was cool! The, the transition that we had there, so very, very small uh, uh, livestock involvement for me there. But uh, you know, they they manage your pastures that way, right? And I mean, Ross, he has been doing some with, with tillage, radishes, and broadcasting Timothy and diverse blends and pastures. Um, he was doing that for a long time already. It's just, you know, then there was no one really there that had interest to take over the farm before I came. And then grain farming was kind of the early retirement solutions. And that mostly with wheat and canola um, due to the, yeah, I'm not going to say that it's easy because it is not a bit <laughs> convenient, I would say, you know, alternating a cereal and an oil seed uh, right. is somewhat of a, well, it's not a rotation, really. It's an alternation, though. But, yeah, that's where we came from anyway. So, obviously, okay. yeah, my first year I did kind of the, you know, 
just starting. You're not having a lot of input there on what we're doing. And, you know, we've been putting on an hydrus with four inch spikes on our implement. And we had an air seeder with 10 inch sweeps on it, which sounds crazy by now. But, mm-hmm. you know, and then we really took baby steps from the beginning. Like the first idea that we had was to increase our organic matter in our fields. That was like one of the very first things I think we did four years ago. Okay. And we basically just did that by agreeing that we won't um, bale crop residue or straw anymore. So right. everything that grows on the field stays out there versus, you know, before we would have had baled it, especially when they had livestock. Um, so that was the first big thing. And by doing that, we kind of, I mean, I was still learning. So it obviously was not, it almost was easier for me to get into regenerative farming versus uh, conventional farming a little bit, I believe, due to the fact that regenerative egg, it seems like most things make sense. You know, I can understand and grab where they come from and why things are the way they are versus like conventional farming, a lot of it, especially with inputs and all of that, it just gets feels like it gets super complicated after two minutes and no one really knows why. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Everyone's so just kind been of kind of doing it for so long and just piling it on top of on top of it. It doesn't, there's not really reasoning behind why it's happening. It's hard to understand. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And I mean, obviously, you know, it makes it sound like there will be some kind of test tube crops out there, right? Like you and wheat need X amount of nitrogen fertilizer and X amount of phosphorus fertilizer each year. And that will give you a good crop, right? Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like almost two easy answers to quite complex questions and, and issues that we're running into as farmers. Absolutely. Yeah. Heavily relying on the technology aspect and not necessarily the creativity part. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the technology uh, aspect is almost the same or you can use the same kind of technology for regenerative farming, right? Like some things just make sense and are good good developments, right? Don't get me wrong. Like there, there are good things to do even with chemical and dry fertilizer just the yeah the amount that we're doing it with or by it's just a bit out of hand right right it's just destroying the organic matter too almost true well all the the soil all the soil life all the soil biology almost right Mm -hmm. plus raising maybe not as healthy plants as you possibly could Right. right do you want to explain um, the difference because your farm is a little bit unique compared to the other farms in terms of um, you aren't like a livestock operation. And so um, we, you're the only farm in the program that is cropland. And so it was a little bit different for us to monitor it. Um, and people right now are having a hard time understanding how cropland can be regenerative. And nice. so how are you doing that with cash crops like what are the practices that you're doing um that like kind of fall under the bracket of regenerative farming without having livestock and like i think you guys do integrate livestock so that is you you just don't own them is, is that correct that is correct yeah we still have pasture that is fenced from when we had cattle mm-hmm. um we don't have any we rent that all out um yeah I still have my timber framing business, so I really don't want cattle, really, because I feel like it keeps me over the winter, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't know that I'm the only weird guy in the program that has only crops. <laughs> so yeah. <that's> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I'm getting used to that by being the weird guy. Yeah, um, just point, just like the weird guy in the already weird group of alternative right? farmers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, story of my life. Oh well. And so, and so, so, sorry, so, so what are the what are some of the things that you do that don't involve animals that are helping the soil in terms of like how you plant your crops or what kind of crops you're planting or? Right. So just in general, I need to say that like we're still experimenting and learning here, right? I don't want to give mm-hmm. the impression that we would have it figured out. Yeah. But um, the thing what we are doing, so I, I, I said already that we increased organic matter by not baling or taking any organic matter off our fields anymore. Then at the same time, we reduced tillage. Like we never really had any high-speed disk passes on the farm anyways. But, you know, just by changing our seeding implement from 10-inch sweeps to I believe they're one and three eighths openers now. And the anhydrous, for example, we went from four inch to three quarter inch, you know, like you reduce your tillage drastically just by changing shovels. Right. You know, like that was a very easy, very first thing we did. And then very early, we started to um, treat our seeds with uh, liquid seed dressing, basically microbes or compost extracts. Mm-hmm. If you want, that's the, r- the right term for it. Um, so we always... So we tried early to introduce microbes to our soil and reduce the amount of fertilizer that we put in. And this year we've been able to reduce our fertilizer inputs by 20%. Wow. And we hope to do the same next year. But you know, that only works in correlation with like a diverse cover crop land that we have out, out in the field and those microbes that we're reintroducing. That would be in a in a healthy ecosystem situation, they would be there anyways, right? we kind of are in the process of um, diversifying our crop rotation. Now we have nine cash crops that we're dealing with versus two, which sounds awesome for regenerative farming. It just makes things quite a bit more difficult on the farm. (laughs) And um, then the other thing is, um, oh, now I forgot what I wanted to say. Sorry, what was that? It's all good. Um, we were talking about the different practices you're doing. And so you were talking about adding the microbes to the soil. Right. Yeah. The different and practices. And having the diverse crops so that you can feed the microbes that are actually already there. Right. Perhaps? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the idea is feeding the microbes, maybe not really, because they are supposed to find their food down there and having that correlation from, from living root that extracts exudates, feeding the microbes, which then are freeing up like important nutrients, right? Which are right. in the soil. They are just not water soluble, which are the, what, what every or most soil test is about, right? So that's always another interesting thing, like testing for different kind of sources of nutrients, which are available is like kind of total different perspective, right? Yeah. If you only change for water soluble nutrients you would only the only result would be that you put them back in because they're always getting more and more deficient right every year mm-hmm. but maybe those are not the nutrients that we're after right and so, so wanna... when do you guys plant that cover crop so that it keeps like what's the difference between the cover crop and the crash and the cash crop growing season so that you're like having that ground covered more throughout the well, year when do you plant that cover crop and how does that work right we try to do it at the same time so our like let's say 
our seeding finally starts. So the first pass in the field last year we did with a, a Velma, which is a, a broadcast applicator. Okay. And with that one, we mixed our, that's what we put the cover crop seed on. So we broadcasted our cover crop seed on mixed with worm castings as a bit of a, as a fertility program there. Yeah. And then we came in with our seeding equipment and sowed the cash crop into it. So means we have two seeding passes. And then just by seeding our actual cash crop, our cover crop gets incorporated. Right. Which is kind of a nice thing. Like whenever you have a, let's say a black chank or you have a little mess with an air seeder, like I know no one misses with an air seeder, but I do sometimes. Or you don't have just weeds approach there, right? It's mostly your cover crop that comes, which oh, I awesome. think is a nice thing. And then since they've been seeded at the same time, so that cover crop plant that we're after just tries to have a balanced diversity of warm season, broad leaves, warm season grasses, you know, cold season, like that kind of stuff. To have like the most diverse root structure that we're introducing to the field beside our cash crop. So that is the idea, right? Like a normal ecosystem would have had like almost a balanced amount of each variety of plant. And we try to copy that a little bit. That's what we're after. So that, that seeding rate and the exact contents of it is still, it's probably get tweaked every year, but we have that more or less balanced now, we think, or we have something that we like, let's put it that way. And uh, it contains a bit of low, middle and high growth to get at all three stages of the, the cash crop to make sure something is growing with it in the same canopy. And then at the same time, after harvest, once we take everything off, that we have something growing close to the ground right after, you know, to make use of that sunlight that we're having and, and get that carbon sequestration really going, like throughout the year as long as possible. Right, fantastic. So there are, there, are, there are several things that we try to do with that cash crop, right? I mean, there's always erosion control and all of that, but we have it more really as, or we like to figure it out to have it more as, a, as our fertility program. Mm -hmm. Like all these microbes that we're introducing, they should be abundant in a healthy system. So the more we try to, or we think the more we try to copy a healthy ecosystem in the area where we are with the plants that are available to us, we feel like we get the, the best result or the best, the healthiest plants, right? Right. Having all those functional plant groups working together, you're going to get the best expression from them because they have the other ones there too. Exactly. Another thing that I thought was very interesting with that broadcast of cover crop is like you have different things emerging in different areas, right? Mm -hmm. So now with all the smart literature that we have available, like it's, it's kind of a chase to figure out like why certain varieties do better in certain areas, not necessarily only because they've been drowned out or what, just mm -hmm. really because of the nutrients that are available. Right. Or the pH levels or whatever, right? Like right. we try to get that a bit as an indicator for what is happening in areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it looks pretty cool too. Yeah. <laughs> we had the... You know, you see those red clovers coming through. Buckwheat usually takes off and, and just looks nice. The sunflowers sticking through the weed. Yeah. Might be a yeah, little disturbing to neighbors, but I thought it looked pretty good. <laughs> I thought that one field, I th what was it? Weed or barley that had the flax in it? All the little... Uh, barley and flax, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought that field was so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> looks pretty yeah. and has lots of functions. It has, yeah. And that was the barley and flax. That was actually an intercrop. So okay. we wanted the flax to be there to be part of our cash crop. 
Um, in the rest of the fields, flax is just part of the normal cover crop plant that we bring out there. Just right. due to its mycorrhizal fungi um, yeah, dependency, I guess, or encourage right. to build that up. Cool. Yeah. So each plant we pick has kind of a, a role or job that it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Very often it gets like focused on uh, nitrogen fixation. But I think just having more that the correlation of different root structures and depth and different plants, I think that is what really, you know, the more diversity that there's out there, I feel like the more we kind of, I don't know, the better we're set up for whatever flows the growing season that is maybe. Absolutely. Yeah, one might do better during whatever climate situation is happening that growing season and then the next, the other one will flourish because it's a different different environment. Exactly, right? Different pest threshold uh, a late frost or whatever. Yeah. We just hope with the amount of different things we put out there that some will some will do it. <laughs> some will survive. Yeah. <laughs> and so you talked about the chat like earlier you said, and this was, was gonna be one of my questions, you said that um all these things that we're doing um is great for like the regenerative side of farming. Um because you see how it affects the ecology of the land and it improves, how does this translate into benefiting you? And like, it sounds bad in terms of like profitability. Of course you want to see the land improve because it will indirectly improve you. Um, but also like, how are you qualifying doing this um, based on like, are you becoming more profitable because of it? Like, is it worth doing all these extra things that are challenging and not necessarily convenient like conventional grain farming could be um why do you why do you do the extra things that are challenging like how is that paying off for you right just one thing i want to clarify conventional grain farming is never never convenient <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. not the right thing to say people are like right. farming is never convenient <laughs> like, there's no such easy thing it's just, true yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, why does it make it worse? You know, our net dollar per acre is more profitable, mm-hmm. but we lost some of the yield mm-hmm. a little bit, you know? But I mean, yeah, profitability per acre, I think, is the ultimate unit. But also at the same time, like, we're just starting that transformation of our ground, kind of, right? Right. Like, all of those things I, I'm convinced will be a lot better like profitability. And once that all gets going, I think it will be easier to manage too. It's just, you know, where we come from, we had wheat and canola. Right. So, you know, things are relatively easy in terms of bin space, um, handling, you know, think, cleaning things out and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're dealing with nine cash crops, mm-hmm. which has also its its benefits, right? You know, like our, our harvest starts way earlier and we're done earlier too, based on the fact that we have, you know, different crops to harvest and wait for them and not just start wheat and then be like four weeks long too late for wheat and then start canola and be too late for canola the rest of the season. Right. You know, it, it stretches it out a bit more, which I find very beneficial. Like it's just, it takes a lot of the pressure of taking 1300 acres off with two people, you know, in those two, three months or like over the course of four. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so when you guys took off the, when you said you used 20% less fertilizer, 
did you notice a significant decrease in your yield this year or not significant enough? Stable. So basically increase. Oh, nice. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. And you know, like once you really saw that happening, which was a nice thing, you know, with, I don't know, it's hard to explain. Like, you know, Ross, he's farming his entire life. He grew up with that family farm tradition, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'm coming around, did something totally different my whole life and just got very passionate about it and educated myself. And now then we changed big things, big time out actually in the field, right? Mm-hmm. That was, I don't think that has been very normal for, for most people in my position. Like I think right. lots of people, it's uh, it's more of a struggle to get things changed in that regard. Right. And you're fortunate enough to have two in-laws that are like very flexible with change. Yeah. And I mean, with that holistic management, they already have the mindset, right? Right. We don't have to, like, we don't have to, I don't know, argue over things, why things would make sense or why we should stop doing things. It's clear. It's just implementing that. And then, you know, I don't know, two years before retirement, changing structural things of your whole farming career is kind of a a odd thing to do, I believe. Absolutely. And so did you, did they kind of coach you through what holistic management was and then you went and took the course or do you, it was kind of like they, all the, some of these practices were already being integrated. So you just learned as you learned how they were farming. Um, no, I think it has been around and, you know, they have an environmental farm plan and their holistic goals. And we have been talking about that and reviewed those things, but they haven't been really like present in day-to-day decisions or day-to-day work on the farm. And then I think after me taking the course and understanding all of that a bit, a lot better, um, you know, we both have that education now. So we kind of talk about the same thing, which makes it very interesting. Yeah. Like the questioning, uh, the the testing questions we probably use the most when we have decision-making things to do. Right. Going over those like questions to make decisions. You guys use those often. Uh, not often, I wouldn't say, but you know, like big purchases or like fundamental decisions. Yes, we review right. them. Right. Yeah. And so, what benefit, like, when you saw me doing the monitoring on the farm during that tour, and then you wanted me to come do it on your farm? Why? Like, I I kind of already have an idea because we talked about it, but just for our listeners, like, what was going through your head? what the importance would be of me coming and like monitoring your soil. Well, at that point, I also just didn't know much about it. Right. Right. It was pretty obvious that you knew. Um, So yeah, basically learn and get an idea what what's happening on our farm. Right. Yeah. That, I don't know. We're always adding stuff. And at that stage, I believe we haven't been looking that much with a shovel, I guess, in the fields when we made decision. Right. Yeah. So that was and very so helpful. And then the EOV in general, you know, just having things that get kept track of or are monitored, right? Like I believe right. it being very helpful just to have it written down and have it monitored and be able to trace things back or see changes more. more. Yeah, you see them better when you have the data, right? Obviously, Otherwise you're just yeah. driving by it for decades and well, <laughs> how do you want to remember what it looked like 10 years ago? 
Yeah. And it feels a lot different when you're actually in the field. I, like I've heard that from a lot of farmers that once they actually go there and they're looking down at that level, you can see things that are improving that you don't necessarily see just driving by the field every day. Yeah. There's a, yeah, <laughs> there's a direct uh, relation from your foot tracks in the field and uh, your deeper understanding of what is happening below the soil. Yeah. Below the right. Ground. right. Yeah, that's for sure. And every time you, yeah, it's like most things that you learn, right? You do them and you get better and all of a sudden you understand things. Mm -hmm. What would you say your biggest challenge is farming? And it could be like a specific challenge that you're like, oh, this one thing we came up in the past year and we're having a hard time dealing with it or just in general, what you think the biggest challenge is for you to farm? <laughs> um biggest challenges to farm yeah i'm not sure sometimes i feel like being on the farm and in charge and surrounded by work and projects is the most positive and the most negative thing depending on my day <laughs> um, it depends on your mood yeah that's just no it's just totally different to what i did before i came to canada right right i was self-employed you have your workshop you have your business you have your building sites but you're not living on the building site which is totally opposite from farm life you're there 24 hour and you know days don't really matter anymore daytime so matter either <laughs> kind of <laughs> during the season you just keep on going and i right. enjoyed it i think that's pretty awesome just you know every now and then when you get tired it's like oh man <laughs> i need to do this and that and wherever you look there's just stuff to do yeah and there's no one else to pass the buck to <laughs> you're the only one <laughs> <laughs> not yet <laughs> yeah <laughs> no. but that's yeah I don't, that no i don't think that's a negative thing it just that's something that i realize every now and then yeah that fact of being so much surrounded by it yeah i don't know if that's something yeah. but it's not bad yeah it just like consumes you but you're like you're not and that's not necessarily a negative thing it's just all consuming yeah absolutely not negative it's just yeah mm -hmm. sometimes it's a lot i think And yeah. so you mentioned your timber framing carpentry job. You still have that off-farm job to supplement income? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And how does that It's work? Do you during the off season? You, off season, yeah. Nice. Does that translate into your farming at all? Like does that experience in that field help you? Yes, a lot. Okay. Yeah. Which is weird because you wouldn't think there's much that overlaps there, but there's actually quite a bit. And nice. um I did a, I'm also a civil engineer technician. So, okay. you know, a lot of the machinery things or loads and all that kind of stuff, rates, whatever, like that has been easy going. So that hasn't been a big hurdle. And then right. with the timber framing thing, yeah, I, I, I see a lot of parallels there. Like where I picked it up in Germany. So first of all, the product that you have is 100% natural, right? Like that itself is kind of a good thing. And then where we sourced our timbers from, it was regeneratively forested timber. Oh, really? So that is, that's kind of what I grew up with. Okay. Which is kind and of what, but the forests around our area have been farming regenerative. That was kind of a, um, a pilot project, I believe, back in the days when they started that. And sorry, that was in Germany? Yeah, in the Black okay. Forest. Okay. And... Um, 
So they also had areas where they stopped doing anything, you know, like certain areas that they put in a conservation easement and totally left alone out of for, for research projects, I believe. Okay. So that kind of stuff and that idea. And then obviously with regeneratively sourced timber, so that whole healthy building, you know, um, healthy shelter idea, massive wood panels and these natural materials like straw, clay, wood, brick, um, and sticking to them, which mm-hmm. we have been kind of forced to because we, I worked most of the time, yeah, the majority of the time in timber framing in, uh, in listed building restoration. So you have these very old, like half timber, half timber framed houses, I think they would translate, half timbered houses that we have in Germany. So the second you start to renovate or fix them up, you're tied to doing it under certain code with the materials that they would have had available at the time. Oh, and okay. joinery and all that kind of stuff. Right. And that is like a super interesting thing because at, at the same time, in that profession kind of you you build these like super efficient new houses you know with vapor barriers and heat conversion and whatnot or part of our trade anyways and they were we were focused focused on fixing up these very old structures like houses from the 16th century and stuff like that wow and and they tell you very quickly what works over time and what does not you know like if you yeah. have a structure that old and you have to repair them for some reason, most of the time it's not the original part of the structure that caused the issue. Like most of the time it was improvements that we felt like were necessary at one point, you know, added insulation, vapor barriers, all that kind of stuff. And that's really when when things start to rot. And even more importantly, when we step away from having healthy structures for people, which mm-hmm. we're supposed to build actually, mm-hmm. right? So, and that directly trend, uh, translates to me anyways, in regenerative agriculture, where we try to raise more nutrient dense, more healthy products for human Mm -hmm. consumption. So, you know, half of my life, I focused on preparing healthy shelter for humans. And now I focus equally on uh, producing nutrient dense food. That's so cool. By (laughs) by the same things, right? By mimicking somewhat nature and and nature products or, or ways nature do, does things right yeah like most houses are designed in a way because that is the best shape to withstand the forces of weather in that area right that's why mm-hmm. we have distinct structures in certain areas right and uh, that is the same out in the field more or less right creating a kind of right, the different stratas of yeah. grassland and forest exactly and, yeah that diversity yeah. right right that makes it then unique and way more prone to whatever, whatever nature throws at it. Yeah. Very cool. And yeah, so, so it, it's weird because lots of people don't get that, but mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I'm not a real carpenter either, <laughs> but you know, like that's why that all makes sense to me. It kind of feels like it all channels towards this one thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. And, yeah, so and so you're, and last time I talked to you or not last time I talked to you, but I feel like maybe even a year ago you were built, you were building a, like a beautiful home for you and your family. Is that still, how's that project going? I'm still working on the beautiful home. <laughs> <laughs> Along with everything else you do. <laughs> that's right. That's right. 
Yeah, I yeah. have that, that. We have that big barn on the farm. It's mm -hmm. 45 feet by 80, I believe. Okay. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I took that on pretty much the same second we got to the farm. Like it was either tear it down or fix it up right now. And yeah. So we started fixing up, obviously. So this year we focus on siding. We got this sided new. And yeah, I hope at one point we get the house done in there. But it's not going to be next year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long project if you want to build it right, I guess. It is. And I mean, I do it in my free time. Haha. -ha. <laughs> a laugh when that free time happens yeah i think i have to add that being surrounded by work and projects is also probably like 89 percent my fault yeah with all the projects i'm taking on and starting and doing all of that yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> all those projects can either be exciting and give you motivation or feel like overwhelming yeah i need to get both out of them i feel like yeah <laughs> Okay, so how come you applied for the Regenerative Accelerator Program? I need help. <laughs> <Good answer. laughs> to be honest. Yeah, no, yeah. that's exactly what I, what I figured would, would happen. Like I was, yeah, I don't know. No, that's just a great answer. to do that regenerative thing. And I was sure that's a good way to learn, you know, or get in contact with people with like whatever. Like, I mean, that's like an incredible opportunity you kind of have to jump on that right did you get yeah. help what was your favorite thing about the program um yeah i got mentored by blaine jurdis from saskatchewan and just having him out on the farm and getting his input and at the same time getting introduced to that you know that regen egg holistic management crowd in the area right is kind of very valuable i believe you know right. i'm not much of a to be honest i'm not much of a zoom guy or or computer, I guess, in general. But I would drive three, four hours to talk to someone for half an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I get that. You're. It's awesome that Blaine got to come out to your farm. I feel like that's a whole nother experience when you're actually out on the land and talking about it with somebody who has the same um, like knowledge or experience doing something similar to what you're doing. Oh, boy, not the same, just way more. Like way more <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like having him out there, you know, and, and seeing what he's looking for and, you know, all these little things. Yeah. Yeah. Just one step at a time. Yeah. yeah. What uh, What was your project that you implemented with the grant? Um, we had two different fields. So last year we did the barley and flex for the first time. And uh, part of the grant got implemented for the cover crop land with the barley and flex. Okay. Because there was a bit of a different cover crop land than the rest. And then we added Italian ryegrass as a cover crop to a normal wheat crop. And then in that field, we had an issue with foxtail barley from the previous year. And we basically had to spray out 30 acres. And there we planted a highly diverse cover crop into as a rejuvenation, rejuvenate, regeneration program, I guess. Rejuvenate or rejuvenation? Re rejuvenation program. Rejuvenation program. Yeah. Sounds odd. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we did with that. Yeah. And that was a tremendous result. Like really just from, you know, we're not scientists, but we walk in the field and we dig a hole and we smell and look and we didn't do very many infiltration tests this year mm -hmm. due to the weather. It didn't seem to make much sense. Right. But uh, you, yeah, it was wild. Like you could tell 
you know, this has been a field that had had uh, wheat and canola alternation probably for the last 12 or 13 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you start to see these saline areas and foxtail pressure and, you know, just start, things start to get out of balance at one point. Yeah. And it was like, it felt like three or four weeks after we seeded that into it was just like exploding with life. You know, lots of birds and we saw a lot of deer in there too, which we usually don't see like right in that spot of the field. Like you see deer all over the time, but yeah, all the time. Uh, that was something that we could tell right away. And then just from driving and walking in there was just so softer than the rest of the field. Like there was a clear line right within the field, which we kind of, used as a reference back and forth. That was something that struck out right away. Yeah. Nice. Unfortunately, though, we had to, well, I cut it for hay and it had um, sorghum sedan grass in it. And unfortunately, we got a frost on it. So there's a a high nitrate concern in sorghum sedan grass after frost. Okay. So that was the reason then we couldn't get anyone on there to graze it. And then I also didn't want to, bale it and sell it the bales anymore so what mm-hmm. we ended up doing was i cut it with the hay vine we let it dry and then we just picked it up with an old combine and chopped it up that was it okay and you just left the litter there that's right basically as uh, armor on the soil for the winter right nice so we purposely didn't try to incorporate it or whatever just have it sitting there as a mat and then we have to see come next spring how it looks like yeah right and so the sorghum, is that something that you're going to try and experiment with again next year? Or I don't is think this so. your frost kind no. of, you don't want to go through that again? No, if I would be a cattle guy, probably for the biomass production and all of that. Right. But you know, like part of the, so let's say for that relay or intercropping or whatever you want to call it, like different varieties out in the field at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like herbicide applications are always tricky right? Because you're likely going to spray out some of your culture. So you almost can't do any in-crop herbicide passes, mm-hmm. which is not the end of the world. It just needs to be managed and thought of. And then the other thing is going to be harvestability, right? I can't have like endless sorghum sedan grass peeking through my wheat crop and all goes through the combine. Yeah. So there are just certain things that like sorghum sedan grass makes sense for the biomass and the roots, but it is certain point it doesn't make any sense to a crop production right does it make sense yeah it makes sense yeah cool. so it doesn't work with everything we had sunflowers though which stuck up and they didn't seem to be an issue at all going through the machine so okay. there's always that that learning effect like yeah i was happy nothing was a real issue this year but i'm sure we're gonna end up with a with a little catastrophe at one point <laughs> Something's always coming. Yeah, we had hairy and veg this year, and the hairy veg really took over in certain areas, which is a nice thing to see. Just uh, swathing it and then harvesting it is more of a little adventure, right? Right, because you've never done that before. That's right, yeah. Okay. So you kind of learn on the go. Do you guys have but, your own seed cleaner? Um, no, unfortunately not. I bought a dockage separator, which okay. is... The intention was to separate our intercrops, let's say peas from oats, uh, flax from barley. I thought I might be able to do hairy veg from fall rye, but I'm not. Okay. That needs to be done somewhere else. But yeah, basically to separate big grains from small grains, if that makes sense. Yep. 
So it really just goes by size and whatever dockage is in your in your sample. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And that works pretty find, good. Do you find it hard to find a seed cleaner and getting in and stuff? I know some of the other farmers I talked about the idea of that machinery and it being hard to come across. Do you do you have a hard time getting your grain there and Yeah, it is a challenge. And I mean especially starting out. Like there are good setups that work very well and that also have the bushel capacity to to make it worthwhile. Um, but you know, those things are usually or very often they're self-made and kind of built together from mm -hmm. different machines, which is good if you know what you're doing. At, at this stage where we are at, you know, we looked the first time this year at a big amount of peas and oats that we had to separate. So we're not there to put a lot of money in a, in a, in a permanent setup. Um, yeah, we're still learning that what we need or what we feel like we need or what would work well or whatnot. Right. So that would, why that dockage separator makes a lot of sense. Like it's mobile, you can go wherever yep. and you're not tying up too much money. Totally. For the amount of options that you're adding to the operation. Right. And so that leads me to my next question. If you had an endless amount of money, time and resources, what would you change about your farm? <laughs> my little my little pipe dream question that I ask everybody. <laughs> the pipe dream question, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure in the questionnaire I said I, I move into the barn and add a helicopter to the machinery fleet. Yeah, I want to know more about this helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of kind of weird. That was the first thing I thought of having yeah. unlimited amount of money, but yeah, I just very it's often so think that would be the most productive thing for what we're doing and where we're doing it. Yeah. How so? Like, so you can monitor the crops without having to drive through them? Well, you know, you could monitor, you can, you can spray with helicopters too. Right. That's what they do in Australia a lot. Okay. And just like, yeah, I don't know, running back and forth from the field very often would be a lot faster <laughs> the way the crow flies than following the gravel road all the time. Totally. <laughs> I just love yeah. that answer. So many people were so modest and couldn't say something. And then you're like a helicopter. I was like, what, yeah. what yeah. is about us? Don't hold me accountable well, there, if I really want to do that one day. But, um, yeah, sometimes totally. I feel like that makes you get sense. the money. I'm going to be calling you immediately and being like, Moritz, where's your helicopter? I want to ride. Yeah. You can do your EOVs from up top. Oh my goodness, those aerial footage, that would be such a good thing to see year to year and just the difference in each pasture because like in one pasture, you can have one section that's totally different. And so to see the difference in the landscape, that would be awesome. Right. Yeah, it is. Uh, I got to fly over our lands, I think, three years ago. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how different it looks. It's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> I think even... Um, what I was talking to one of my the farmers last year was actually Doug, Doug Turnbull. Um, we were talking about like the drones and investing in yeah. a drone to do the spraying of your fields because I don't know, I guess the big ones, probably like a $2,000 to $5,000, but then they can only carry so much and depending how big your operation is. But I think some people are looking into the drone spraying. Yeah. Well, that's going to be interesting though, because you have to carry a lot of product, right? Exactly. Yeah. Or yeah, maybe and fuel and stuff to go back and forth. And battery power too. I think that was one of the issues. I know some uh, some machinery companies they come up with like fleet options 
for autonomous mm. uh, crop production. So okay. basically not huge tractors like we have now without an operator, more like wheelbarrow sized machines and then, I don't know, 50 of them per field, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. That is different. But, uh, I'm not cool. sure. I'm going to see that out of my helicopter then. <laughs> Okay. Um, what would you say to someone who has no experience in farming, but would like to start? Just go ahead. Call, call <laughs> a farmer and ask for a job. Yeah, That's it's that easy. Do. It is. It literally is. Like, don't waste any time researching farms or farms that you would like, or they do what you think is right. Just get on a farm and start working. Yeah. I like that yeah. answer. And then the rest is going to come. Like, if that's not the kind of farm you like, you can change anyways. Yeah. yeah. I think there's also like a lot more farm job opportunities than people realize. Like two years ago when I was looking into it, I was kind of like, well, which farm would want me? And I have no experience and yada, yada. And then you start getting into the farm world and you realize there's lots of opportunities to just work on a farm. There and is. Get yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, agree. Just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I think that's the best. It's like there's not, yeah, there's more stuff that is more or less the same. I feel like regenerative or conventional farming, you know, right. like on farm every day, that there are actually things that are different. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it matters if you go to like regenerative farm or not right away. Just to learn the basics, you can do that wherever. Absolutely. Right. The concept and decision making that comes with managing a, a regenerative farm is like there's still aspects of just like everyday farming. That's just farming. There's no difference. And just learning exactly. that. And that will never change. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Good advice. Um, and so just coming to the end here, is there any other projects that you're working on or anything exciting that you want to share? Um. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna start um, seeding some perennial water runways in our fields next year. Okay. That is interesting because it's kind of the total opposite of what people around us sometimes do, kind yeah. of draining water holes and all of that. Mm -hmm. And we, yeah, we we believe we would see big benefits of having them better left alone and in a in a functioning root system than you know trying to seed through there every year and fighting through there all the time and yeah right and so just to give some background for those who don't know usually when you're crop landing the ideal land would be like get rid of all the bush get rid of all the watering holes just so it's like a flat even place that they can seed and harvest with their machinery that's right, correct, right? Just, that's right with the, with the size of machinery that we reached by now it's just like almost not really efficient enough to circle around objects and not have a straight line as often as you can right yeah like your productivity just goes below so that's why a lot of people need that yeah and there but are areas where you, you can do that and there are areas where you shouldn't maybe right and so what you guys are doing is trying to bring back those water or just let them be there naturally that's right we figured we degraded them for long enough now and now we let him heal. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. So that is one project that we're going to do. Um, 
we're going to go a bit more into um, application of micronutrients maybe with foliar applications. That would be something I would really like to melt some urea to have some liquid nitrogen applications. Okay. Play around with that a little bit. Um, we're not adding more crops next year because I'm a bit freaked out of the amount that we're having to deal with already. Right. So we're just trying to get better at them. Learning from some mistakes from last year. Nice. Yeah, I think that's it with new projects. That's a good nice. thing. We have enough to to get better at. We don't yeah, have to, to work on. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Sweet. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just want to wrap the session up with sharing some resources to our listeners where they can hear more about you or follow along your journey or... Um, you guys don't direct market your grain, correct? It's just, it all goes into like the commodity market. That is right. Yeah, so far. But right. that's also the first year where we have commodities that, yeah, that can be marketed into different streams, I guess. We have some nice. mold barley, fortunately. We got some fall rye. Yeah, I would like to get that somehow into the distilling and brewing market. That would be just awesome. Nice. Yeah. And we also, have, uh, we have also um, pasture-raised pork. Okay. That we try to sell. Nice. How do it's people not... contact you to buy that pork? Uh, they would have to call me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. nice. We're pretty middle-aged. We don't have a Facebook page or Instagram account or anything like that. Yeah. But I, That's... Most of the time I answer my phone. 613 3940 you guys got that? <laughs> Call more. <laughs> yeah, like a million scam calls tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, we'll post. Well, we'll post your your information like with this podcast. We'll post it on our website and our social media, and maybe just provide them with an email link if anybody wants to get a hold of you or contact you or has more questions about your farm or. Sure, yeah. all the time. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Please reach out. Right on. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your story with me. No problem. Thanks for having me. To learn more about holistic management, regenerative farming principles, and the farms in Manitoba that are implementing these practices, check out our Instagram and Facebook page or visit our website at holisticmanagement.ca and make sure to sign up to our newsletter so we can let you know about all the upcoming events and learning opportunities in your area. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss in the future on this podcast, please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. For our soil's sake, thanks for listening in, everyone.